Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to Siberia. We're going to be talking about uh, the Russian expansion towards it and inside of it for this episode because, well, like I promise you this time, I want to deal with these episodes properly. Last time I looked at the more of a political side and how people viewed it. This time we're going to be taking a look at how they actually achieved their exploration, conquest and everything. And first, like any good podcaster of history will tell you, we need to talk a bit about geography. The territory of Siberia stretches from the Ural Mountains for some 4,500 kilometers, approximately, give or take a hundred or so, to the Pacific coast, which is roughly the distance across North America at the latitude of the Great Lakes. Its Arctic latitudes extends another 1,500 kilometers to the tip of Chukotka Peninsula, and the narrow Bering Strait which separates Asia from North America. Almost all of Siberia lies north of the 50th parallel, making its position comparable to Northern Europe and Canada. And it is to, well, brutal Northern Canada that Siberia's climate could be compared to, but, you know, similar, yet not exactly the same. The seasonal range of temperatures is somewhat similar, but because of the huge Eurasian landmass, Siberia is even more extreme than Canada. Over much of its expanse, winter temperatures average minus 30 Celsius to minus 40 Celsius. That's extremely cold because, well, minus 40 Celsius is also minus 40 Fahrenheit. That's the one temperature where they come together. So if you're using Fahrenheit, then understand that at its worst, it can go to minus 40 and in some places, it can go even below that. Such as uh, Verokhyansk and Omyakanon, the coldest places in the Northern Hemisphere, temperatures can fall as low as minus 71 Celsius. Uh, by the way, uh, I think the rate of Fahrenheit and Celsius, where I Google it up, is kind of like 
10 degree increase in Celsius is 5.6 in the period increase in Fahrenheit, approximately. So like 10 degrees Celsius lower is about 5.6 there, but in negatives it goes weird. But yeah, it can fall as low as minus 71 Celsius, which is actually way below the average temperature on Mars. At the same time, these temperatures can rise to plus 34 Celsius in summer, which is in the 90s in Fahrenheit. So just like desert, this is just crazy, except that uh, this is a frozen north desert where the summer temperatures last for a very short while, yet are extremely, extremely hot. In this vast and climatically harsh territory that the Russians conquered, annexed and maintained. This is what they had to overcome to get all their resources and their territory. By the end of the 17th century, little more than 100 years after Yermak's expedition, and we'll get to Yermak, don't worry, Yermak's super important, just remember that word, Yermak. After his expedition across the Urals, and barely 200 since asserting dominance over its eastern Slav rivals, the Muscovite state had transformed itself from a relatively small Eastern European principality into a near-imperial power to be reckoned with. A feat which is rendered all the more remarkable because of Siberia's relative lack of natural boundaries as safeguards against invasion. If you think about it, other than Pacific Ocean, some major rivers such as the Amur, which forms Siberia's border with China, and the Seyan Mountains, hi to all the Dragon Ball Z fans, I'm, I'm a huge anime fan myself, watch Made in the Best, Made in the Best is the best anime ever, I've seen in a long while, Bone Dude is the best dad, um, yeah, sorry, sorry about that. Uh, by the way, but Amur, which forms Siberia's border with China, and the Sayan Mountains, separating south-central Siberia from Mongolia, there are really no formidable natural barriers between Siberia and its southern neighbors. In the west, the border formed by the Urals themselves has been questioned. I'll give you a quote from Danielevsky's book Russia i Europa, Vzgled na kulture i kulturne politiske atnoshenye. Slavyanskava mira, germansko-romanskomu. That is published in 1895 and would translate to Danielevsky, Russia and Europe, a look at the cultural and political uh, differences of the Slavic world to the Germano-Roman one. So, quote, What is it that confers upon them alone out of all the mountains on the face of the earth? the honor of serving as the boundary between two continents. An honor which in all other cases is granted only to oceans and rarely the seas. In terms of its altitude, this mountain range is one of the most insignificant of all, and in terms of its traversability, one of the easiest. In the middle section around Yekaterinburg, people cross them and ask their diver, but tell me, brother, just what are these mountains? End quote. Nonetheless, they are distinguished by their role as a boundary, and it is on their eastern slopes that Siberia begins. Geographically, Siberia can be divided into three sections moving from west to east. From the Ural Mountains to the Yenisei River is the wide, low-lying western Siberian plain, the world's largest, which forms the basin of the region's greatest river, the Ob, and its major tributary, the Irtysh. These rivers carry the waters of the Altai Mountains northwards to the Arctic Ocean. 
at the same time, by the way, the Altai Mountains are where River Daugava begins and where many other rivers begin. Also, the Dnieper River begins there, which the Altai Mountains basically formed kind of the pass between the road from the northern Swedish part to Constantinople, because you would travel down Daugava, then you would just step off in the Altai Mountains and move your boats about 100 or 150 meters to the beginnings of Dnieper and go down. So this is how the Vikings got to Constantinople. These rivers start as very, very minor uh, streams back there, and the kind of the river that we call Daugava in Latvia is called Zapadnaya in Belarus and other places because of where it begins. These rivers carry the waters of the Altai Mountains northwards to the Arctic Ocean, and over the most of their courses, as a result of slight gradient, they flow slowly. The watersheds between these tributaries are low, and because their exit to the sea is blocked by ice for much of the year, large areas of the plain are flooded in the springs when the snows melt, making numerous lakes and marshes a permanent feature of much of western Siberia. South of the Arctic Circle, the vegetation is primarily sparse, coniferous forest of pine, cedar, larch and spruce interspersed with peaty bogs. Generally known in Russian by its Turkic name, Taiga, it is home to the many of the animals common to most of Siberia. Brown bears, wolves, elks, reindeer, lynx, and smaller fur-bearing animals like, you know, squirrels, chipmunks, polecats, ermines, and sables. And uh, taiga also has trees in it, and that's the difference between taiga and tundra. Uh, this is a fun study because we were taught in schools, at least I was, and I know that some of people from my generation were taught as well. If you have to remember the difference between taiga and tundra, you remember tiger woods. So that's how you remember that Taiga has forests in it. Tundra does not. You know, a famous golf player notwithstanding. Further south, around the latitude of Tomsk, which I've been mentioning in a lot of few political episodes, the forest first gives way to a wooded steppe, then to the open grassy plains of the steppe proper. This transitional fringe is the only natural boundary Western Siberia has in the south. Beyond it, the plains and deserts of Central Asia stretch for 1,600 kilometers or more towards Afghanistan and Iraq. In the far north, a fringe of tundra, averaging about 300 kilometers wide, though in some places much wider, stretches the breadth of Siberia. Snow covered for at least 240 days annually. The only forms of vegetation are mosses, lichens, stunted woody shrubs, and a few herbaceous plants that bloom in summer. Animal life is restricted to small rodents, fox, reindeer, snowy owls, and some other birds of prey, as well as aquatic birds that summer on the shore. The Arctic coast islands and offshore ice are also home to seals, walrus, and polar bears, because no study is complete without the awesome introduction of polar bears. Such is the natural environment that shaped the peoples the Russians encountered in western Siberia. The generally accepted date for the beginning of a permanent Russian presence in Siberia coincides with the launching of the Cossack Yermak Timofeyevich, told you Yermak was important, campaign across the Urals on September the 1st, old style by the way, 1581. And I have to put another tangent here because despite the generally accepted nature of this date, inconsistencies in the chronicles concerning the dating of some events have given rise to a lot of debate about this accuracy. It's kind of like Stalin series. 
Sirnikov, another Russian historian, for example, is a staunch supporter of a late August to September the 1st, and uh, 1582 dating for the campaign to start. Other people state that Diarmuk's departure happened in 1579. The accuracy of assigning a date and month to an event tends to be more reliable than determining the year. In general, this is a function of the religious surrounding of the people whose recollections inform the chronicles and histories who remembered things in terms of the holy day or saint's day on which they occurred. In such a context, particular years were viewed as just not significant enough. Which makes things for us here who want to give you a nice little picture and making sure that you know when Yermak started and how this all went. Uh, a tad bit... Um, Difficult, if I might say so. However, while staking out a claim to the east of Urals might have been novel, the Russian subjugation of northern Russian peoples was not. Therefore, before proceeding to events in Siberia, it would be instructive to examine some Russian dealings with non-Russian peoples to the west of Ural Mountains. Indeed, Bakrushkin, another one of my sources, confidently asserts that the methods, goals and attitudes of the colonizers to the local Siberian populace repeated both in the 17th century and even later the Slavic colonization of the Finnic tribes along the Volga and other regions. Prior to Moscow's rise as the locus of East Slavic power, the dominant centers of the East Slavic culture and influence were the Principality of Kiev from the 9th and until the 13th centuries when it was overrun by the Mongols and subsequently Novgorod. Located in northwestern of European Russia, on the banks of the Volkhov River, not far from North Lake Ilmen, Novgorod paid tribute to the Khans of the Golden Horde, but escaped outright domination. It is in reference to Novgorod that the earliest mentions of contact between Russians and indigenous peoples are to be found, and I mentioned Novgorod colonization bet in the last episode. The region around Novgorod was laced with a system of rivers and portages that was relatively easy to navigate. The principality's relative freedom to pursue its own ambitions and a desire to obtain commodities for trade with Western Europe both permitted and prompted Novgorod's exploration of the northern rivers and valleys by at least 1032 when an expedition was undertaken to the so-called Iron Gates. The location, by the way, of these so-called Iron Gates is unknown and... um. Using a lot of um, books here, one by George F. Lanzef, Russian Eastwards Expansion Before the Mongol Invasion, which is published in the American Slavic and East European Review in December 1947, no less, because, well, we have to use older documents here. But these things seem to have been at least as far as the Pechora Valley, perhaps further, and Pechora Valley is quite a ways away from the central territories. Yuri Semyenov, Another historian here suggests that they were situated in the Urals, barring, literally and symbolically, a passage to an unknown land. Also, it's likely that explorations in the north and the east of Novgorod were undertaken earlier than 1032. This is simply the earliest such mission recorded by the chronicles of old Russia. It seems plausible, however, that there was a Russian presence in these regions even earlier. There are many indirect accounts of Slavic activity in the north before the 11th century. For instance, Jordanes, a 6th century Gothic writer, speaks of trade between Slavs and Ugrians and the Arab geographer Ibn Rushte in about 912, and he also writes of Slav commerce and sables, a primarily northern animal. Perhaps the most reliable account derives from a report of a Norwegian seafarer named Otter, 
At the end of the 9th century, he had been sent by the Anglo-Saxon king Alfred to acquire walrus tusks, Morzevny Sub, by the way, in Russian, and skins from a coastal area of a land known as Biarmia, Biarmland to the Scandinavians, which was supposed to conceal legendary treasures. Because, you know, you can't go into history without uh, people speaking about legendary treasures. You know, that's kind of lost these days, if you think about it, because, you know, right now we don't really have a frontier. That's why I want to explore space, because people, you know, they might say a lot of bad things about Elon Musk, but we need a frontier. We have nowhere to go, like, uh, if you want to go somewhere that's unexplored and go into the wild stuff, you had things to do in the beginning, but, like, right now you don't, and it's kind of... It's kind of sad as we are born too late to explore the Wild West and the Amazonas and the New World, and yet now we cannot even explore space right now. But there's this driving of men, don't you think? This driving of men and women, by men I mean the human race, towards the unknown. This is probably my biggest complaint about living in this era, because if I had the chance... I'd surely join Magellan's expedition or whatever. I would be one of the first ones to go and do crazy stuff. And if if a chance opens up for me to go to Mars and become one of the first colonists there, I will surely apply. Because, hey, just sounds like something really fun to do with your life. But anyway, continuing on with this uh, story of the previous explorers, because that's kind of all we have, if you don't count, you know, Minor exploits to this day. At the end of the 9th century, he had been sent by the Anglo-Saxon King Alfred to acquire wireless tasks and skins from a coastal area of a land known as Bjarma. Reaching the mouth of the northern Vina, Siverna Edvina, which is Daugava, by the way, which is where it starts, although my text reported as Siverna Edvina, the northern Dvina, you know, that's the Russian name for Daugava, the legendary river of Latvian people, Jordanes encountered numerous people who were using waterborne transport and engaged in fishing operations and the hunting of marine animals, supposedly of a more advanced nature than that which the region's natives possessed. According to the Icelandic tales from the early 11th century, a town had stood for some time already on the banks of the Dvina, where merchants from Scandinavia come to trade in summer. Based both on the northern Dvina's relative proximity to Novgorod, because, yeah, Daugava is fucking close to Novgorod, and on descriptions of a nearby cemetery where an idol of the god Yomala stood, it seems likely that at least some of the people of the Scandinavians traded were the Slavs. Further, since it was far more common for foreign merchants to come to Rus than vice versa, the presence of Western Europeans in this territory at least can be verified by local finds of Anglo-Saxon and German coins of the 10th and 11th centuries. Since Novgorod's economy could not be based on agriculture because of its northern location, it had to rely on extraction of the natural wealth of the surrounding forests and rivers. Accordingly, fur trapping developed as Novgorod's primary industry, naturally drawing the town's attentions north and east in search of sable, black fox, beaver, and a staple pelt of the northern trade, grey squirrel. The merchants of the city were also attracted by the rumors of gold and silver, a rich fishery, both riverine and along the White Sea, and the sea animals that provided white fur and ivory. Hey guys, Annette here. 
Thanks so much for tuning in to our new episode of the Eastern Border. I would like to say a special thank you to all of our Patreons for supporting our show, even through these tough pandemic times. You guys are what keeps us going strong. So really, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you. And if you're still not a Patreon and are considering becoming one, head over to patreon.com slash the Eastern Border to find out how you too can support our show. Thank you again, everyone. Stay safe and enjoy the show. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. All of these products were valued at home in the markets of Novgorod's Hanseatic partners, such as Valmir, Riga, Stockholm, and other places. I should probably make an episode about Hansa on its own, because the Hanseatic League has left its mark on us and by we in Riga, or our own free Hanseatic city for a while. And it still left a marking in the Slavic markets of the south, where Novgorod exchanged them for bread and wax. Most of these natural riches were located outside the territory of Novgorod proper, Platina, in the region known to residents of the city as Zavolochia. As a result, Novgorod's activities were concentrated, over time, along the northern Dvina, Podvinia, Daugava, the shores of the White Sea, Pomoria, the Pechora River, and the Priural regions. In general, it was wealthier merchants and nobles who were responsible for opening the territory, since the distance, harshness, and wilderness of these places made them accessible only to the most enterprising people. Uh, that's a quote from Pirvieraski Episanie Sibirskiy Zimli, or The First Russian Descriptions of the Siberian Lands, by Baruchin, written in 1987. Late Soviet historiography, I know I mentioned I would be trying to use them less in the last episode, but some of them are really great. However, another breed of man, the river pirates. Ah, no story is good without pirates. Ushkuniki must share the credit. Some of the most successful entrepreneurs were in fact not those who acted independently, but rather those who pooled their resources. For example, in the mid-14th century, merchants who specialized in trading with Yugria formed the Yugorshina Corporation. Well, corporation in uh, the loosest sense of the word, Wealth from which financed the construction in 1365 a stone church of the Trinity in Novgorod. Given the relatively wide expanse of Novgorod's operations, it was inevitable that its traders and trappers would come into contact with native peoples. 
both peaceful and those who resented and resisted incursions into their lands. Despite being able to settle some areas along the northern Dvina in the 13th and 14th centuries, Novgorod's small population made it impossible to colonize on a large scale or to establish enough permanent outposts to exercise effective control of the territory. This presented the dual problems of sorting out how to ensure the steady flow of the furs and other commodities that drove Novgorod's economy, and how to maintain control over those tribes hostile to their presence. The solution for Novgorod was to supplement its own commercial activities by levying tribute, done in furs from the native populations and backing up its demands with punitive raids if the payment was insufficient or refused. Over time, raids of this sort became a regular policy designed to maintain the flow of tribute as well as to keep, quote, interlopers from the Volga and Kama country, such as, well, well-known cities today, Rostov, Suzdai, Vladimir, and later even fucking Moscow, from approaching Novgorod's possessions. And I say fucking Moscow because Novgorodians and Moscovites are gonna have a huge beef, and spoiler alert, Novgorodians are gonna lose basically everything. Encounters of this nature between natives and Novgorodians can be found scattered throughout the centuries. And the Chronicles as well. As early as 1096, there is mention of a barter trade with, with the Yurga, a Finnic tribe living in the region east of the Pechora River and on both slopes of the northern Urals. In 1130, the Boyar sent his sons Vsevolod and Zyaslav and Rostislav with their retinue to the Chud and gathered tribute. This also comes from historical documentation, which is called Historia Ruskava Yatopisania, Leningrad 1940. Because, like I said, uh, sadly I can't get rid of um, Soviet sources. An entry for the 1138 lists the Ugrians as one of the peoples against whom Prince Yargoplog campaigned. In 1212, Prince Mstislav, with the Novgorodians, went to the Chud and took from them many captives and riches. And again, in 1214, which, uh, by the way, comes from um, uh, the same Soviet chronicle, uh, but before all the terrible things happened, this is a 1940 chronicle, quote, <clears throat> Prince Mstislav went the Novgorodians to the Chad, to Nyerreva by the sea, and burned their village and defeated them, and while Mstislav held fast outside Borobian town, that should petitioned Prince Mstislav and brought him to the tribute. Raids of similar nature occurred again, you know, 1342, 1366, 1369, 1375 and 1390 are related by other sources. I will not go into those, although, you know, had to read about all of them. That's kind of uh, the important part of all this situation here. The extraction of tribute was not the only reason for mounting expeditions to the north and east. Incursions by the aforementioned interlopers were a constant threat to trade routes and Novgorod's control of them. In the winter of 1315, Prince Mikhail of Tver came to Turzhek, with a, quote, great host and the Novgorodians took the field against them. In retaliation for a 1323 incident in which Ushchiazdi, residents of Ushchug, an outpost of Rostov, robbed traders from Novgorod, a Novgorodian force campaigned to Ushchug and in 1324 and compelled its prince to conclude a peace treaty. 
1340, another expedition was launched from Novgorod to fight the inhabitants of Ustyug, who, as early as 1329, had continued their harassment of Novgorod's merchants. And again, because they all fight all the time. In 1340 and 1372, the Novgorodians waged campaigns in the Torzak area. In the first instance, the conflict seems to have been resolved in Novgorod's favor, for when Prince Semyon returned that Novorzhitsi had sent to Novgorod in submission. However, in 1372, after the Novgorodians drove off the Mikhailid governor Mikhail Tversky, came with troops to Torshek and carried off 5,000 people. Vengeance could also, well, as they always do, serve as a motive for military action. The Chronicle recounts a raid by Prince Simeon against the unclean Jean Beck, whom Simeon held responsible for killing two of his brothers. As might be expected, Novgorod's merchants and soldiers did not always meet with success. In 1079, Prince Gleb Svetoslavich sent out on an expedition with many followers and was never heard from again. About a hundred years later, in 1187, an expedition by Novgorod's nobles and joined by a hundred boyar's son, Sinyi Boyarsky, by the way, it's an interesting term, sons of boyars, went in search of riches to plunder, but, quote, returned without booty or boyar's sons. Well, that ought to show you something about the resistance of these people. Shortly, soon after that, in 1193, a raid was staged to Jurgen territory, demanding tribute in silver and sable. It was neither successful nor apparently forgotten, for in the following year, Jurgens attacked Novgorod itself. Nor was success necessarily achieved as Novgorod grew in strength and wealth. In 1445, we're moving there, we're moving there guys, trust me. Dvina Vojevoda, the war chief, Vasily Chernutsky, commanded another unsuccessful campaign to Ugria. The crucial lessons to be gleaned from this and complete listing of Novgorod's experiences beyond the portage are that whatever advantages Novgorod enjoyed because of their greater political and economical organization and later weapons technology, which is always important, it did not have the means to run roughshod over the native population, you see. The expansionist ambitions of the other Russian principalities and understanding, Novgorod lacked the manpower and consequently the military muscle to enforce its will in any permanent way of the region. Rather by, and I quote, Historyczyski Ochurk Zawojewanie Azjatskiej Rosji by Gwaglinka, that's basically a um, historical chronicle of the conquest of the Asiatic Russia, published in 1974, quote, Rather by levying tribute of furs and of such silver as could be obtained from the natives, by extracting homage and further promises of tribute, followed by withdrawal, this formula to be repeated from time to time, if promises were not fulfilled, Novgorod exercised a sphere of influence instead of actual sovereignty. End quote. Indeed, Novgorodian colonization was in large measure a colonial rough draft, and the upshot of Novgorod's campaigns to Ugria was the latter's nominal annexation to Novgorod and the subjection of Ugrian princes to Lord Novgorod the Great. And it was limited to very irregular payment of tribute. Basically, they come in, they smack you, and they say, Now you pay us gold! And then they're like, Well, fuck off, we're not gonna pay you any gold whatsoever. And then Novgorod is like, Well, we're gonna come back at some point. Maybe, if we can afford it. Well, sometimes they do, and then you have to pay tribute again, but in general, 
not not that effective, really. Moreover, Novgorod's ineffectual control prompted some of its own citizens to betray the city's interests. In 1342, for example, the boyar Luka Volofremiev, not heeding Novgorod, amassed troops, uh, Druzhina troops, basically militia, and slaves, Holopi, and we're going to get into Russian serfdom and slavery uh, in a future episode, and established the settlement of Oridits, from which he began a war in the Dvina lands with the aim of accumulating its wealth for himself. As expected, because this is Russia, eventually the local inhabitants just murdered his ass. While it was not uncommon for wealthy merchants or nobles to establish outposts from which to base their operations, it was usual for many of the goods obtained to be sent back to Novgorod as its foreign and southern trade, while the most cunning entrepreneurs kept a certain amount of profits. Early Russian contact with, um, I don't know what the term is, I'm going to use indigenous peoples, Aboriginal? Aboriginal might be offensive to someone, so uh, I'll just use indigenous peoples. So early Russian contact with indigenous peoples was not limited to Novgorod's experience. There were contacts directed from other centers, and although they started later, they, in great measure, were concurrent with Novgorod's. The city's southern neighbors were also interested in exploiting the same rivers and forests as Novgorod. As early as the 13th century, Nizhovskia, princess in negotiations with Novgorod, had succeeded in securing rights to trade on the shores of the Studetnoye Sea, which is Barents and White Seas. Indeed, by the turn of the 13th and 14th centuries, a Nizhovsky prince, Andrei Alexandrovich of Vladimir, had secured the right, via treaty, with Novgorod, quote, to go to the Tchersky country where the Novgorodians do not go, end quote. Exercise of these rights naturally engendered a general interest of the part of these princes in northern affairs. Some successful colonizing created for them, little by little, their own sphere of influence and, quote, awakened in them the notion of complete assimilation of Novgorod's periphery, end quote. For an interest in the areas hitherto Novgorod's prerogative intensified in the middle of the 13th century when the heartland of Rus between the Volga and Oka rivers began to experience devastating, devastating, or listen to the wrath of the cats by Dan Carlin, Mongol invasions, which disrupted traditional industry and effectively cut off trade to the south and the east. As the incursions increased in frequency and intensity, residents of the affected region moved west and north to escape the destruction. This immigration in turn provided a ready source of manpower to those wishing to colonize the northern territories. At first, the trickle by the 14th and 15th centuries, there was a steady stream of colonization running from south to north into the Zavoyoche and Pomoria, moving primarily along the Kama, Vatka, and other rivers. It cut directly across the trading and colonizing routes used by Novgorod. The potential of conflict to arise between competing interests is, well, very obvious here. As some examples, well, I've mentioned before. The arrival of the scene of a new power wishing to exploit the natural wealth of the territory would, in itself, increase the pressure of the indigenous people to provide tribute to new, or in some cases, to two new masters. Indeed, the ensuing increase in competition led, not unexpectedly, to a redoubling in efforts of the parts of Novgorod and led the Nizhovskia to acquire and keep under their sway tribes that would pledge allegiance to, and supply first to, them alone. Thus, requiring the application of greater and more persistent pressure. 
Until the time of Moscow's rise as the dominant Russian principality, the spheres of Novgorod and Rostov Suzdai Moscow's influence fell roughly on either side of a line drawn from Velyozersk to Veliki Ushchug, and I will provide maps for this. Nevertheless, the autonomy of the native peoples was not yet seriously threatened. The blossoming of Moscow as the leader among Russian principalities, however, signaled a fundamental shift in the locus of power away from Novgorod, with long-range implications for the native peoples of the north. And sadly, due to disruptions of my electricity, this is where we're going to end today, but we're going to continue on in the future. Because, well, right now, uh, I have to record each part separately, because the massive hailstorm with thunder and everything is really disrupting my electrical power, and I had planned this episode to be three hours or longer, because I still have about 50 more pages of script to go on, but I'd rather not, and I'd rather won't torment uh, Anat either. So, this is what you're going to have for today. But we're moving onwards. We'll get to Alaska. It's just that I find this subject extremely interesting and powerful. And we'll learn about the Russian Siberia along the way. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please support us on Patreon. Our Patreon has fallen from February to right now due to COVID by at least uh, 30 people, and we've uh, lost a lot of income, which makes it hard for me to pay to my editor and still pay my bills. So if you can, become a patron. That would really greatly help the show. And if you can't, please tell your friends about the show, because, you know, it might not be a lot, but those $200 that I've lost so far, due to the Patreon failures, they mean a lot to me here. And literally, well sometimes mean whether or not I'll have something to eat tomorrow or day after that. So, thank you to all of our patrons. Please continue supporting the show. And um, if you are considering it, please go to patreon.com slash the eastern border and become a patron. That'll be much appreciated. Do svidanya, tavarish. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void.